Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Alan Lynch, a professor in the Department of Politics in the College and Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at the University of Virginia. Lynch's research interests include Russian foreign policy, Russian politics and comparative perspective, and relationships between international order and political development. He has many books and monographs to his credit, and his articles have appeared in journals in the U.S. and abroad. His works have been translated into Russian, Chinese, French, German, Serbio-Croatian, and Polish. In this podcast, Professor Lynch will talk with us about Mikhail Gorbachev. With Gorbachev's recent passing, I'm interested in learning more about this leader and his time and how he was and is perceived in Russia, the West, and even here at UVA. So thank you, Professor Lynch, for speaking with me today. Thank you, Susan. It's great to be here to talk to you and uh, to the broader uh, UVA community out there. Great. Thank you so much. So first, can you provide some context and history to Gorbachev's background and the time in which he came to power in the Soviet Union? Yes, Gorbachev was born in 1931 in southern Russia, rural Russia, the region of Stavropol. Uh, he grew up uh, pretty much in rural poverty. Uh, his uh, grand Both of his grandfathers were deported, by the way, under Stalin during the so-called collectivization campaign. That's when the Soviet Communist Party came in and took, took the land back from the peasants. Uh, so two of his own grandparents were deported to Siberia. This was a pretty common experience at the time. In fact, when I was at Columbia University between 89 and 92 administering the Russian Institute there, I met almost every significant Soviet leader at that time, and practically every single one of them had a similar story about deportations in their family uh, in the Stalin period. So this was actually a fairly typical experience. He also grew up under uh, temporary German occupation in 1942, as the Nazi army was on its way to Stalingrad. So he experienced the war as a young boy, as a, a budding teenager directly, all the privation that that entailed. He grew up basically in a grass-thatched mud hut in southern Russia, which was the common predominant experience for uh, the overwhelming majority of the Soviet population, majority rural still at that time. He uh, was a bright student. He managed to get a scholarship to go to Moscow, Moscow State Law School, in the very late 40s and early 50s, where he had some unique experiences. Remember, Stalin is still alive. He dies only in March of 1953, by which time Gorbachev will have graduated. But he has foreign uh, comrades, foreign friends, one in particular from Czechoslovakia, a fellow by the name of Zdenek Mlinaj, who would later become an architect of the Prague Spring, the, uh, the communist reform movement in 1968 in Prague to build something called socialism with a human face. Uh, he was Gorbachev's best friend at Moscow State Law School, and he got an insight into life abroad that was very rare at that time, as the Soviet Union under Stalin was pretty much hermetically sealed from the outside world. Uh, I'll just give you one instance. He would receive a postcard from Lenage during the summertime when he was actually working in the fields to make a little extra money driving tractors. And the postcard was personally delivered to Gorbachev by the chief of police. That's how rare an event uh, any 
message from abroad, even from a fellow communist country was. So he had that unique experience. He also uh, later, uh, as he rose through the Communist Party hierarchy in the 60s and 1970s, had some rather unique perspectives on Soviet agriculture and the problems facing the Soviet economy. Uh, for example, in the early, six, early, early 70s, he and his wife, Raisa, uh, by the way, we'll come to this later. She joined him at UVA in April of uh, 1993 for a remarkable event. But in the early 70s, he and Raisa traveled alone without supervision for six weeks in France and Italy. And they got a chance to witness uh, the standards of living in the Western world. They understood they could go anywhere they wanted. This was not a Potemkin village. This was real life. And immediately the scales fell from his eyes. He understood the Soviet Union was generations behind the Western world in terms of standards of living, also in terms of agricultural uh, productivity. So he had some rather unique experiences. He came to understand over time, although you could not uh, determine this at the time, that the Soviet Union was generations behind the Western world and that the model of economics that Stalin had created, hyper-centralization, hyper-militarization, uh, hermetically sealed from the outside world economy that could no longer continue if the Soviet Union were to be a truly modern, competitive, appealing state in the latter part of the 20th century. Just to give you one example, by the time he came to power in March of 1985, there were some more than 30 million personal computers at use in the United States at that time, more than 30 million. There were just 50,000 in the Soviet Union. So that's a ratio of about 600 to one, and that ratio was actually increasing. So at a time when the Soviet foreign policy of its predecessors had seen Moscow increasingly isolated against a block of Western powers plus China with economies seven to eight times larger than the Soviet economy, that gap was much larger in the area of modern technology. So... I'll mention one last item. Just before coming to power in 1983, Gorbachev spent 10 days in Canada on an official visit. And he was, as a member of the Politburo, the highest policymaking body. And he was received by a gentleman by the name of Alexander Yakovlev, who had lost a battle in Moscow politics in the early 70s over the case of Russian nationalism. He was against it. He was sent abroad basically to get him out of the country. For 10 days, Yakov Lev and Gorbachev found soulmates in each other, and they understood the system had to be fundamentally changed. So by the time Gorbachev is elected the general secretary of the Soviet Communist Party in March of 85, as the number one leader, he's already got at least a vision of where he wants the Soviet Union to go. It has to break decisively with the Stalin's past both institutionally in terms of overly centralized, overly militarized institutions, but also psychologically in terms of fear of the state, fear of neighbors of each other, fear of taking initiative, and fear of the outside world. Thank you. That, that's really very helpful to understand him as a person and his background. Um, so Gorbachev was in power for six years. Can you talk about some of the highlights of his leadership and the Soviet Union? You've talked about some of the things that he was interested in doing. So during his leadership, what were the highlights? Well, the things that are spectacular about Gorbachev's brief tenure in office, just about six years or so, is that his uh, very accomplishments are also what triggered his disasters. Mm -hmm. He did dismantle Stalinism institutionally and psychologically in the Soviet Union. He took the centrally planned economy apart 
but he really didn't have a substitute for it ready in place or even in stages. Mm. He, had, he was a man of visions rather than of programs. Had he a broader network of Moscow-based politicians and experts to help him implement his visions, perhaps history would have turned out rather differently. Mm -hmm. But he did succeed in de-Stalinizing the Soviet Union. But in the process, he also destabilized it. He also de-Sovietized it. Gorbachev had faith in the Soviet system. He believed it had been corrupted by Stalin, that uh, the excessive violence, uh, the distortion of the economy, these were all things that could be corrected. Uh, interestingly, Gorbachev, however, was the only Soviet leader who had never spent significant amount of time professionally in the non-Russian ethnic parts of the Soviet Union. Uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev are both from the uh, Russian-Ukrainian borderlands. Mm -hmm. Andropov, who briefly served in the early 80s as the number one leader, uh, had uh, presided over the restoration of Soviet authority after World War II in the Baltic states, and also was the ambassador at the time of the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956. He understood the power of nationalism. Stalin himself, of course, was not an ethnic Russian. He was from Georgia in the Soviet South. And even Lenin, although ethnically Russian, was part of a cosmopolitan international group of uh, communists, both abroad and in Russia, which included numerous non-Russian nationalities, Poles, Armenians, many Jews, like Trotsky, for example. But Gorbachev was unique in that respect. He thought the Soviet Union had really solved the problem of nationalism, of ethnicity, that it was merely of folkloric significance. He found very much to his surprise and to his shock, and I think disbelief, that nationalism still had a powerful uh, mobilizing force behind uh, uh, in many of the regions of the Soviet Union. So in dismantling the centrally planned economy, that was one big accomplishment, mm -hmm. in dismantling the political monopoly of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, a second major accomplishment, he also undermined the institutions, the only institutions that really span the length and breadth of the Soviet Union, and in the process, taking off a kind of a Pandora's lid on the box of, uh, of what was still a multicultural, multinational, multi-ethnic country, multilinguistic country. And uh, he had no idea that he was doing that. He was so confident of the uh, consensus on core Soviet socialist values, he thought he could achieve something like a Soviet New Deal. In other words, comprehensive structural reform without calling into question the core solidity, the core stability of the system. Now, that's domestically. So he de-Stalinized the Soviet Union, and he succeeded in doing that. But in so doing, he discovered that the roots of Stalinism ran much deeper than he thought, and they were at least as deep as the Soviet system itself. So in uprooting Stalinism, he also uprooted the Soviet Union. And that's a major part of his domestic legacy, and it helps explain a great deal about why most Russians even today hold Gorbachev in contempt for his six years in office. They regard him as having triggered the disintegration of a single uh, political space, a single administrative space, cultural space, linguistic space, even a single family space for tens and tens of millions of people living in the former Soviet Union. Now, of course, in the United States, in Western Europe, in Germany in particular, Gorbachev is uh, lionized still for his foreign policy accomplishments, which were spectacular and which earned him justifiably the Nobel Peace Prize in 1990. He ended the Cold War with the United States. Uh, as early as May of 1989, Ronald Reagan is standing in Red Square in Moscow, and he's asked by a reporter, Mr. President, do you still regard the Soviet Union to be an evil empire? 
And Reagan said, evil empire, why that's another country, another time, another place. So Reagan is declaring, in effect, the Cold War is over by May of 1980, excuse me, 88, I believe I said. So it should be May of 88. He presides over the peaceful collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, where something of the same dynamic that took place, that will take place in the Soviet Union took place. That is to say, by encouraging East European communists to engage in reform dialogue with non-communist parties, he pushed the East European communist systems over the edge. He underestimated the power of nationalism there, and that most East Europeans saw their local socialism as a brand of Russian imperialism. However, true to his principles, and this is what distinguished him from all previous Soviet leaders, and probably successive Soviet leaders as well, Gorbachev had a principled aversion to the use of force to solve political disputes. And he was true to that, fundamentally true to that. So communism collapses in Eastern Europe peacefully. The Berlin Wall comes down and Gorbachev does not oppose it. Germany is unified by free elections, and he allows that Germany, through negotiations with the U.S. and Germany, to join NATO. All done peacefully, without the use or even the threat of the use of force, for which he gets the Nobel Prize. But back in the Soviet Union, and to the present day under Putin's regime, that decision to allow both the unification of Germany and the entrance of that unified Germany into NATO is regarded as one of the worst decisions ever in the history of Russian foreign policy, and also helps explain why Gorbachev has as small a political base uh, in uh, Russian history as he does. He ran for president in 1996, five years after he was ousted from power. I know from people who knew Gorbachev, he was convinced, probably like all politicians, he was convinced that he was going to win that election. It turns out he got one half of 1% of the vote. So uh, the Democrats, such as they were in Russia, despised him because they felt he never really broke decisively with the Communist Party. And the much larger nationalists and communists uh, hold him in contempt because they believe he triggered the disintegration of their common country. That is, he destroyed the country he was trying to save through ill thought through reforms. And the elections of 96 prove that there was just no domestic constituency for Gorbachev anymore. So you have a leader uh, with diametrically opposed uh, uh, reputations inside the former Soviet Union, especially in Russia, and in the outside world, Western Europe, North America, uh, the United States and Germany in particular. Wow, great. Thank you so much. That's a very good synopsis and a helpful understanding uh, of him and his time. And and to see Russia now uh, with Putin's leadership and power that has led to an autocratic system that rules through intimidation and use of power, uh, I can imagine the answer to this question, but how did Putin uh, view Gorbachev? And then you've spoken to this a little bit, but the people of Russia, as time has gone on, uh, has that legacy continued to be the same? Let me start by just noting that in the first seven or eight years of Putin's term in office, mm -hmm. until about 2008 or so, Gorbachev supported Putin. Okay. He supported him as somebody who was trying to uh, bring about a Russian economic recovery after a decades-long depression that actually was triggered during Gorbachev's regime in 1990. 
he supported Putin as a leader who was trying to restore a degree of respect for Russia's international standing. And let's also remember that Putin was, and he remains, by the way, to the present day, a fairly popular leader in Russia, of course, with the manipulation of uh, the media by the government, et cetera. But nevertheless, there's a very substantial core of support there. Gorbachev's support for Putin began to disintegrate around 2010 and 2011, as basically the gloves came off of Putin's regime, and he resorted to increasingly brazen, open authoritarian methods uh, to preserve his grip on power and the grip on power of the network of his cronies who were dependent upon him uh, for access to the incredibly rich uh, treasure trove of uh, corrupt resources that mm. control the Russian state makes possible for people with access to that network. So I just want to say that, first of all, Gorbachev supported Putin up to a point. About Putin's, about Putin's attitude toward Gorbachev, I don't think he ever regarded Gorbachev positively. Mm -hmm. he, he did attend, he did pay respects to Gorbachev's casket recently, mm -hmm. but he did not attend the funeral. Mm -hmm. He's famously quoted in 2005 for saying that the disintegration of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. That's a direct quote. Mm -hmm. Disintegration of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And he held and still holds Gorbachev principally responsible for that. He specifically holds him responsible for allowing the unification of Germany into NATO in defiance of the instructions he received from the Soviet Politburo at that time. Keep in mind also that Putin did not spend uh, most of the Gorbachev period in the Soviet Union itself. He had no direct experience of glasnost or greater openness and of information, publicity, discussion of public affairs. He didn't have direct experience at that time of the greater pluralism, both within the Communist Party and across Soviet society. He remained for five years until 1990 in East Germany, in Dresden, where he was a secret police KGB colonel. And for him, the Gorbachev period comes down to the collapse of the Soviet intelligence apparatus and military apparatus in Eastern Germany, the creation of a vacuum of power in his terms, which he holds from his life experience, both individually and also politically, as creating opportunities for adversaries to fill those vacuums, usually to the detriment of your own interests. So Putin, I don't think, ever held Gorbachev in high regard. He, he treated him correctly in public, because I think he just felt it was a matter of respect given the office. Mm -hmm. But in practice, he, like I'd say the majority of Russians, held uh, Gorbachev in contempt for believing too much in the ideals that Russia had to some extent absorbed from the West mm. and that Russia could somehow become Western and still remain Russia itself. And Putin, I think, never really believed that. And I think to Gorbachev's dying day, uh, Putin held Gorbachev in that kind of contempt, which, by the way, is pretty consistent with the view of the silent majority uh, in Russia itself. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And now, as we said, in the West, Gorbachev was seen as a reformer and a leader that brought the Cold War to a peaceful end. So in the West, he's seen as, as in such a positive light, receiving the Nobel Peace Prize in 1990. And um, can you speak more about 
his legacy in the West? His legacy in the West is the opposite of yeah. his legacy inside of Russia, uh, at least the Russian parts of the former Soviet Union. He's lionized. Um, he's seen through the lens of its Nobel Peace Prize, and justifiably. Without Gorbachev, I don't think you get the end of the Cold War as early as you get it. You certainly don't get it as peacefully as it happened. And to be quite honest, and his critics would concede this point too, probably without Gorbachev, the United States and its allies don't get anywhere near the kind of favorable settlement that they received in the Cold War between 1989 and 1991. After all, the Cold War ended on almost every single indicator according to the maximum agenda that the United States had expressed throughout the Cold War. Gorbachev thought that all of these concessions were justified because he had managed to create a genuine partnership with the U.S., with America's West European allies. Kind of like a marriage where, at least a good marriage, where you don't allow individual agree disagreements or conflicts to undermine the relationship as a whole. He believed that's what he had achieved by 1990 or so. And there was some circumstantial evidence justifying that. For example, between 89 and 91, the U.S. and its allies transferred almost 90, 90 billion dollars in various forms of capital credit, both direct grants, but also loans, credits, et cetera, to the Soviet Union to prop up the Soviet economy, to reinforce the stability of the Soviet Union, because they didn't want to see a nuclear superpower fragmenting into a multiple conjuries of nuclear armed states. So there was evidence to suggest that. In practice, as we now know, and you could figure out pretty soon afterwards, that was a serious commitment, but it was transactional mm. from the Western point of view. It was not designed to bring about a qualitatively long-term integration of Russia into Western institutions. It was designed to sweeten the pill, in effect, um, of uh, harvesting this enormous cornucopia of concessions and institutionalizing them and making them permanent. Now, from the point of view of Gorbachev's successors, their view is, well, look at NATO expansion in the 1990s. It's just their partnership with Gorbachev was just transactional. And let me give you one uh, further evidence uh, of this piece of evidence. In 2007 or so, Gorbachev had an interview with Dick Cheney, then vice president of the United States. And it was reported in, in extensive detail with verbatim transcripts in the Wall Street Journal. Hmm. And so remember, this is 2007. This is after the American invasion of Iraq. This is after, you know, now six, seven years in Afghanistan. This is after the Americans pulled out of a number of arms control treaties uh, with the post-Soviet Russia. This was the famous period of unilateralism under the Bush administration, the second Bush administration. And Gorbachev asked Cheney, Mr. Cheney, why don't you Americans take the interests of other countries into account for a change? You know, you could actually achieve your objectives more efficiently and at lower cost. And Cheney said very simply, why should we? He said, you know, we squeezed the Soviet Union mm -hmm. until the pit squeaked, mm. until, it, until it cried uncle. Mm. That's, that was Cheney's view to Gorbachev. And in effect, therefore, the simple unilateral exertion of American power will be sufficient to advance American interests. So in effect, Gorbachev exposed the, uh, the fiction that he himself had been believing 
1989 and 90 and 1991 that there was just as strong a will for power in Washington, D.C., the U.S. national security bureaucracy, as there wasn't any other power on planet Earth in the history of, of human political systems. So how did he feel at the end of his life? Um, that was 2007. He lived for many more years. Was he living? His last, his last two and a half years, Susan, he, he was a very sick man. He was in the okay. hospital. So we can't really say much about that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he did support uh, Putin's annexation of Crimea in 2014. He believed that it was fundamentally Russian. Uh, and it, after all, it was done virtually bloodlessly at the time. It was a kind of masterstroke on Putin's part. His mistake was to think it could be replicated on a much larger scale through Ukraine's whole later. But Gorbachev actually supported that foreign policy move, as did a number of Russian uh, political leaders, like Alexei Navalny, who now sits in jail, one of Putin's opponents. He's a nationalist rather than a liberal. He also embraced the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Gorbachev, if you read his memoirs, I don't think he ever really came to terms with what happened under his rule in, in, in Moscow between 85 and 91. I don't think he ever understood the unreality of what he was trying to do. Not simply reforming the old Stalinist economy. Almost everybody agreed something had to be done along those lines. Not simply reforming the political system to make it more flexible, introducing partially competitive elections, but trying to do them both at the same time. That is, you know, try to have your cake and eat it at the same time. You're, you're, whatever the characteristic of your economic reform, if you're also reforming the political administrative order, you won't have the foundation in order to bring it into a being. And that was, by the way, the basic Chinese critique of Gorbachev, of Deng Xiaoping, the famous Chinese reformer who, recall, began to reform in certain um, economic sectors, mm. peacefully, gradually, while keeping the political system constant. And the Chinese are convinced they did it the right way and Gorbachev did it the wrong way. So I don't think Gorbachev himself ever really came to terms with what happened. I think he sees it as a consequence of people being insufficiently committed, insufficiently loyal, betrayal by the West, and all of these things are part of the picture. But fundamentally, by trying to reform the political system and the economic system simultaneously, I think he condemned himself to failure from the very beginning. Interesting. Thank you so much. Um, and finally, I understand that Gorbachev visited UVA in 1993 uh, to help celebrate Thomas Jefferson's 250th birthday and that you heard him speak. So can you tell us a little bit about that visit and his remarks and his time here at UVA? Yes, that, so that was Founders Day, 1993, April 13th. It was a spectacular event. I was there. It was like commencement. The mm. faculty got dressed up in cap and gown. They walked from the rotunda all the way down to the Homer statue. The, uh, the podiums were set up. Gorbachev was there. He received his honorary degree. His wife, Raisa, was with him side by side, as she always was, by the way. She was a PhD in philosophy herself. She was a social scientist. She was a student of um, uh, basically rural sociology in, in the Soviet Union, standards of living and so forth. 
And he gave, uh, I would say, a standard commencement graduation type speech, you know, very uplifting. Uh, he was received as a rock star. This is 1993, only a year and a half or so after he uh, was ousted from office. And all of the subsequent um, calamities and disappointments, both inside Russia and in Russian-American relations, had not yet come to pass. So he was really viewed as a Nobel rock star. Now, I'm sitting there in one of the first rows, together with my Russian colleague, Yuri Urbanovich. And we're listening to Gorbachev. We both speak Russian, so we can hear, we understand what he's saying before it's translated. Mm -hmm. And at one moment, Gorbachev said something that practically caused us to fall off our seats. <laughs> because uh, He had been well briefed about the University of Virginia culture. And he said, you know, my entire life, I've been in constant dialogue with Thomas Jefferson. And Yuri and I looked at each other. We couldn't believe it because we knew, because we studied him carefully. Dozens and dozens of times back in the Soviet Union, he had said the exact same thing to meetings of the Communist Party in the Politburo, except substituting Vladimir Lenin for Thomas Jefferson. Comrades, that is shit. My entire life, I have been in constant dialogue with Vladimir Lenin. So, he knew his audience. They ate it up. They loved it, right? Then we proceeded to a Newcomb Hall ballroom where there was a gala luncheon. It really was like a Nobel Prize event. Mm. It was a stunning event. And very much to the credit of Gorbachev and to the University of Virginia. How wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, uh, and really all of this information, uh, Professor Lynch, it's such a given us an understanding of the rich history of of Russia itself of you know the former Soviet Union and of Gorbachev's legacy in his own country and beyond and I just really want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni friends and families it's been my pleasure Susan thank you for inviting me on thank you wow. absolutely <laughs> thanks so much and thank you for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find our podcast on Spotify and with the Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thanks again, and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.